Hello, I'm Alan Power and you're listening to the National Trust podcast. This week we're sharing with you a special episode from our People's Landscapes series. People's Landscapes is a National Trust-wide year-long programme telling the stories of places that have shaped the nation, marking the 200-year anniversary of the Peterloo Massacre. In this episode, we join historian Elnor Baraclough as she uncovers the secrets behind an old English poem about a bloody Viking Anglo-Saxon battle. This series is hosted by John Sargent. Thousands of years ago, at the end of the last Ice Age, Britain didn't look anything like the familiar group of islands we know today. At that time, it formed part of a landmass still connected to the European continent. As the Earth warmed, huge northern glaciers melted with catastrophic effect, flooding the low-lying bridge which connected us to the continent. The familiar coastline, rivers and islands of the UK started to take shape. One such island was Northy Island on the River Blackwater in Essex. An important event took place here in the 10th century. In 991 AD, a company of Viking soldiers sailed into the mouth of the River Blackwater. What then happened on this island would change British history for hundreds of years to come. I'm John Sargent and this is People's Landscapes, a podcast from the National Trust which explores how people, places and cultures have come together. In this four-part series, we will discover what connects Ice Age floods and the dialects we speak, how geological events can form the bedrock of community or become the driving force behind neighborhood feuds. In this episode, medieval historian Eleanor Baraclough heads to Northern Island to explore how an Anglo-Saxon poem may give us some insight into the language and customs that shaped our nation. Just like those Vikings, I'm making my way along the River Blackwater by boat towards Northy Island. This is a really exciting moment. I've always wanted to actually come here. I've, I've seen it from the shore. My mum comes from just down the road, but I've never actually been on the island. So the Battle of Malden took place in August 991, and it's, it's between the Vikings and the local Anglo-Saxons led by Berthnoth, who's this this great local leader. And the story goes that the Vikings are on the island and the causeway that joins it to the mainland is covered in water. So so the Vikings stand on one side and the Anglo-Saxons on the other and they're shouting across the water at each other. And then as soon as the causeway clears, then the Vikings are let across to fight the battle on the other side. Just in the distance over there on the island, I can see a little figure on the shore. I assume that's Daniel Leggett, who's the coastal project manager at the National Trust, and he's going to be accompanying me today on my exploration of this island. Hello, you must be Daniel. I am. Welcome to Norway. Thank you. Gosh, this is extraordinary. I didn't realise it was so 
green and lush. And, and this is where the Vikings would have hung out before the battle, do we of think? Of course. And what evidence have we got that the battle might have happened here then? Well, there's a very famous poem, which is about the Battle of Malden, and that describes the kind of landscape and the features uh, and what went on in the battle as well. And that's a very important sort of historical record. I've got a copy of the Old English poem, The Battle of Malden, here, and it's easy to see how some of the details can get lost in translation, partly because it's a poem, it's a work of art, but also because the language we call Old English, it's not anything like the English that we might know today. You can read a bit of it, first in the Old English. Ne michte dar for water a werod to than otherum. Dar com floende flood after eban lucon laus dreanas. Nor could that army join and go over to the other army because of the water where the flood came flowing after the ebb tide. The streams separated them, and there it goes on its it. I get your point that from translating something like that into modern English is, uh, is a, a difficult thing to do. Um, but there are kind of bits in there that are understandable. The ebb and flow of water, you know, is something that uh, we'd recognise. People will debate it, I'm sure, but this does fit the, the descriptions that are there. So as we go round, you'll be able to see some of those features that are described in the, in the poem. Well, let's go find some of those features then. The part of the island we've been walking through up to now is very tree-covered and green, and we've, we've just come out now and we're looking out over the water, but then also this very bare, alien landscape. If you're just looking out over it, it just looks like scrubby grass undulating, just dips in and out, and what, what even is this? This is the salt marsh. This is the, the habitat that sits between the land and the sea. It's actually quite an interesting environment. It's got lots of things that we would think of as crops now, like carrots, celery, asparagus, dill. You know, dill things like this will exist at the top end of a salt marsh. Uh, fennel is another one. So these, these plants are, uh, have been developed and cultivated from this environment for our purposes, you know, uh, in agriculture. But this is the original. This is the kind of the raw version of it. If the Vikings were here, is this what would have attracted them to this sort of landscape? They wouldn't look at uh, an alien landscape. They would see a larder. Other than the plant life, what else might we have around here that we could eat? Uh, the Blackwater, of course, has herring in it. Herring? Uh, a species that, you know, Scandinavian They'd cultures are very yeah. familiar with. So there is actually a subspecies which is called the blackwater herring. It's slightly smaller than the North Atlantic it's herring. Specific to specific the blackwater. Specific to this estuary. Gosh. So, um, so they would have been very familiar with that. They had nets, they had hooks and lines. They would have caught fish without any bother. They'd see plants, they'd see fish, they'd see birds. They'd say, we can stop here and we can survive perfectly comfortably. This would have been a great place for food and for Vikings to survive in, but also it's a sensible place from a sort of military strategic point of view, to select this as the place to encamp. Essex is a, a rich area. It's a place the Vikings would have wanted to raid and take money, take tribute, take people from. My name is Dr Rory Naismith, and I am a lecturer in early medieval history at King's College London, uh, with a particular interest in Anglo-Saxons, Vikings, and other people of that period. 
sites like this, islands, rivers that come in, uh, these were the, the sort of points of entry that the Vikings would use to get into the country. We've walked round to the east part of the island, past all the asparagus and the, the, the beets. All we can see once again is water and then land beyond. Would this sort of setting have been an advantage for the Vikings? We're miles inland from the sea here and they can sail here. They haven't had to fight their way here. They can start inland and then have the advantage of seeing this way. They could even signal to their friends if they're on the horizon, many, many miles away from them. So do you think they must have known this landscape before they, they came here for this? I mean, you know, it seems like it's a landscape you have to know how to read in the way that you can read it. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's two things in there. I think, number one, they would be able to read it. Just arriving, never having seen it before. And I think the other thing is, you're, you're right, I think that the, the, there's a high probability that they would have been to places before. They may have traded into places before. They may have, you know, had some dealings with people in an area and checked them out and checked out the spots to go and said, OK, we know where we're going. Lads, we're going to this location. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is, this is a prime spot for us. It's absolutely fascinating. Should we continue walking and see what else we can find? Yeah. We're walking around this final bend that brings us back to where we landed on North the Island by boat a few hours ago, but it's such a change because what we've got exposed in front of us here is the causeway, which is the main setting for the poem. And up to this point, as we've been walking round the island, we've been speculating about what the Vikings got up to, but we do know that because of the part of the poem that we have, that a causeway in this location is likely to be where the battle with the Anglo-Saxons would have started. There's the references to, to the Anglo-Saxon army, the East Saxoners, so the, the East Saxon or Essex army lining up. And then this is the point where on the other side, the Viking messenger stands on the island across what will become the causeway, but right now is just water shouting out to the Anglo-Saxons, telling them that if they pay off the Vikings, then they will leave and there'll be no battle and no one will be killed. And then Birchnoth shouts back at the Viking messenger. I'm thinking, well, I always thought it's a bit far to shout, but of course, if this causeway was half the length it is now, that's, that's fairly reasonable, isn't it? I think it? it's doable. We should probably give it a go, see if we can replicate yeah, okay. it, right? Who's going to be the Anglo-Saxon? Who's going to be the Viking? Well, I reckon I'm a Viking, actually, so... <laughs> uh, uh, I thought you'd say that. You're, you're six foot, you've got, you've got blue eyes. I think it's probably fair. So if we put you at this side of the causeway, how far do you think I've got to go? It's about 75, 100 metres. So, so I'm going to walk there. It's, it's fairly dry, it's a little bit wet. Be careful. All yeah. right. They have sent me to you, the hardy seamen. They bid you be informed. You must quickly send rings in exchange for protection. Here stands with his troops a renowned earl who wishes to defend this homeland, the country of Ethelred, my own lord, and his citizens and territory. The heathens shall perish in battle! 
actually that was pretty good we could we could hear each other yeah we? i could hear you very clearly across there so likewise this sort of width you can see that this is perfectly plausible yeah makes complete sense. Yeah. Hey, you're a good actor you're good viking oh thank you it's, it's in my blood <laughs> <laughs> so as the tide receded and the causeway was exposed they could start to walk the vikings towards the Anglo-Saxons. You can see why they wouldn't have wanted to fight on the causeway. It's so slippery. There's just algae and seaweed and puddles of water everywhere. The Vikings, they, they asked that the Anglo-Saxons give them passage so that they can march across the sands to the mainland, basically, and then fight the Anglo-Saxons there on more favorable terms. Now, if the Anglo-Saxons had said no, that might well have meant that the Anglo-Saxons could have won. They could have just killed the Vikings off one by one as they tried to march across this little spit of sand. Or, more likely, the Vikings would have just got back in their ships and gone off somewhere else to raid and pillage further up the coast. We've now come a few metres off the causeway and up, up where the, the land extends and then starts going down again. I mean, is, is this the site? The academics and the, the people with knowledge designated this area here that we stood as being the battlefield. And this is the point in the poem where we get all the detail, everything starts to get really dramatic. You know, we've got the names of the warriors on the Anglo-Saxon side at least, and you can really start to picture this in the landscape we're now in. There they stood ready against the furious one, Birchnoth and his warriors. He ordered them to form a shield wall with their shields and told the army to hold firmly against their foes. Shouting was raised up and the ravens circled, eagles eager for carrion, an uproar was on the earth. Bows were busy, shields were peppered with points. The onslaught was bitter. Warriors fell on either side, the young men lying. Then the sea warrior sent a spear from the south to wound that lord of the warriors. Birchnoth shoved it with his shield and burst the shaft. Then the heathen warriors sliced him down and both of those men who stood next to him. Alfnoth and Wolfmark both lay there when they gave up their lives beside their lord. This battle in 991 marks the start of a new wave of Viking raids on England. And it also marks the start of something that's referred to in the poem, which is the idea that the Anglo-Saxons would pay tribute in order to buy off the Vikings. The Vikings want money. They can either get that by just taking it, by raiding and grabbing things, grabbing people, grabbing gold, grabbing silver, or, as they do after the Battle of Malden, they can just wait and the king will buy them off and they can go home without having to draw their swords again. We know that there was, I think, £10,000 paid to buy off the Vikings. That's a lot of money nowadays, but this is £10,000 in £991 shillings and pence. We're talking about millions here. Not very long after this, in, in 1016, King Knut is on 
the English throne and England becomes part of the North Sea Empire. So, I mean, Daniel, this is a really significant place where we're standing now, isn't it? It really marks the change of something in the history as well as the landscape of this part of the world. It's quite remarkable, and particularly when we're stood here now, to envisage all of those events taking place a thousand years ago. And, uh, and, and the consequences that run from there and the, the line of history being kind of changed by this type of event. So it's, um, it's something that's good to immerse yourself in and get a feel for, I think. And I mean, how better way of doing that than standing here in the landscape, actually on the site where quite possibly the battle took place? Yeah. Paul Brifnoff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he didn't come out well. He didn't make it to the end of the poem. Did he didn't, no. <laughs> For all of the violence, raiding, pillaging and looting often associated with the Viking presence on British soil, it seems that in reality, when the Vikings actually settled here in large numbers, their approach was more amicable than dominant. We think of the Vikings as scary, violent warriors, and they certainly did, did commit acts of violence, but they were also a very, very canny and well-organised group of people. They came and traded, they came and settled, they came and made all kinds of other peaceful, cultural, economic um, impacts on all sorts of parts of England and indeed other parts of Britain, Ireland and beyond. There was a sense of Vikings assimilating indigenous culture. Hence, today, there are relatively few physical reminders of the Vikings' time on British soil. But if you know where to look, you'll find evidence of Viking influence often hiding in plain sight. As a result of the Vikings coming in is really something that's quite new and places take on new names, new kinds of artwork emerge, society changes what we see emerging is a hybrid society which is richer for those different components coming into it. A lot of the words we still use in English, for instance, come from the Vikings. Window, um, skirt, um, the, the definite article that we use, that's from Old Norse. Many place names hide evidence of their Viking roots. Places like Selby, Derby and many others ending in B-Y can trace their lineage back to the Scandinavian word bu for farmstead or village. Likewise, there are places ending in ness, like Skegness, ness being the Norse word for headland. One of the places in the British Isles where the Viking influence can most tangibly be found is on the Scottish islands of Orkney, and on Shetland, there's one unmistakable remnant of Scandinavian culture. How are you, Christine? Are you well? I'm very well, thank you. You're Christine De Luca, and you speak Shetlandic, which is it's a sort of mashup of linguistic and cultural influences that date all the way back to the Vikings. Is that right? That would probably be quite a good way of putting it. Yes. Can you give me a sentence, something that that helps me to understand how the Norse is still in Shetlandic? I remember Norwegians going, leaving our home one day, and saying "tak for mat, tak for mat, tak for mat," and it was so similar for. Thanks for mit, that we would say, thanks for mit, thanks for Because we say, yeah, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time in Norway, and yeah, it's tak for maten, or in Danish, tak for mal. So you say the equivalent of that in Shetland. Mit is our generic for food. 
in Bergen, folk might say aye aye, and we, we say aye aye for hello, you know. It's just simple little things like that. It, it, it is odd. You're pure Vikings. As a child in, in our little village, we used to get a lot of Norwegian fishermen, and my father could speak Norwegian, so he would invite them in. And they just looked so much like our cousins and our uncles. You felt very comfortable with them. So then how do you personally identify? Are you... Shetlandic? Are you from the Northerners? Are you Scottish? Are you Nordic? I'm all of those things. I see it like like Russian dolls stacked up. I'm a Shetlander. I'm from the Northern Isles. I'm a Scot. I'm part of that Northern European family. I'm a European. I'm a Brit. I'm very comfortably all of those things. I'm a child of the world. Christine, it was it was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Well, it was lovely to talk to you. <laughs> Having spoken to Christine, I've now come back to what may well have been the site of the Battle of Malden. What you really get a sense of from walking around the island, speaking to Daniel, speaking to Christine, is a sense of just how closely the history of people and landscapes are really intertwined. Often when I'm engaging with history, I'm, I'm in a library or I'm in a lecture theatre and it's, it's all fairly inert, it's just words on a page, but it's really being here in the physical setting itself and, and hearing Daniel shouting as the Viking messenger across the causeway, you really get a sense that this is, this is a living event that took place and there were real people and it took place right here in this landscape. To learn more about this podcast and other audio programmes from the National Trust, go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. The People's Landscapes podcast is part of a year-long programme of events, exhibitions and debates inspired by the 200-year anniversary of the Peterloo Massacre in Manchester. Today, as the crowds mill around Peter Street or sip afternoon tea in the city's Midland Hotel, most visitors are blissfully unaware of the dramatic events that took place here 200 years ago. In the same spirit, we invite you to look beyond the beauty and familiarity of your favourite National Trust properties and take a deep dive into their surprising and hidden histories. To learn more about the events and exhibitions associated with People's Landscapes, go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash people's landscapes. Thank you for listening to this special episode. Listen to the rest of the People's Landscape series on your podcast app of choice. Next week, we'll be back to our usual schedule of the National Trust podcast, when we'll be exploring the pleasures of tree climbing for grown-ups. To find out more about the National Trust podcasts, go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. <laughs>